This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Stillbirth Foundation Australia and Community Care Kitchen. The content shared in this podcast represents the views of the Still Nest and our guests and may not specifically reflect the views of these organisations. Please seek professional medical advice for any clinical circumstances that may arise. Welcome to the Stillness Podcast, a place of solace for bereaved parents and their communities. I'm Dr. Fatima El Assad, a researcher and a bereaved parent. Losing a child can make you question everything your identity, your faith, and your place in the world. On this show, we will explore the complexities of child loss particularly within culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I'd like to hold space for bereaved parents to be seen, heard and understood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and God's mercy and blessings be upon you. As with all our episodes, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the Eora Nation and their ongoing custodianship. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In today's episode, we will be exploring sacred practices around death in Islam. If you are triggered by our conversation, I have linked resources in the show notes for you. We are discussing difficult experiences often unheard, so please take the time to check in with yourself and get the help you need. In today's episode, we are joined by the only Muslim female funeral director in New South Wales, consultant and educator in death literacy, and I'm exceptionally impressed with the work she does as a death doula and in her business, Sakina Funerals. It's wonderful to have you join us today. Could you please introduce yourself? Thanks, Fatima. My name is Mariam Adati. I'm a funeral director, death doula and death literacy advocate. I've been in this space for a number of years now um, and I was born and raised in Sydney, New South Wales by two Lebanese uh, migrant parents. I'm one of five girls and I have three children of my own. Thank you, Mariam. I want to delve into your expertise as a funeral director. So in the Islamic tradition, there are different rites for a miscarriage, a stillbirth and the loss of a child. Can you maybe explain to us what the process is after somebody has experienced a loss? Yeah, so it's um, it's not uncommon to have um, stillborns and miscarried fetuses brought into the funeral parlour to prepare for some rituals and, and, and the burial process. What is not really common is that often the parents don't understand where the formal rituals for a deceased Muslim start and finish when it comes to gestational periods. There's a number of opinions um, amongst the scholars as to which of the rituals are performed at which stage, but essentially it's if a woman miscarries a fetus that is of human form that is before the four-month gestational period, then the baby is wrapped in a cloth and buried. 
if the stillborn was of a baby of more than four months gestation but has not made or shown any signs of life when it was um, miscarried, then the fetus is given a ritual washing, a shrouding, and a burial. So the only missing component of that is the funeral prayer. If the baby is miscarried and it shows signs of life, even if it is just a cry, then all of the funeral rites are given to that baby. So the ritual washing, the shrouding, the funeral prayer, known as the Janaza prayer, and a burial. There are some differences of opinions amongst the scholars because there are some um, varying opinions at which stage which is offered, but generally speaking, that's the order in which the rituals are, are given to the children that, that pass away at those stages. So, Marion, what is the underlying wisdom why there are these different rites offered at different stages of loss? So in Islam, the fetus um, has a life, a life that is protected by Islamic law, once it reaches 120 days gestation. Before that stage, the creation is simply either a blood clot or a, a, a form uh, of flesh that's been created in the womb of the mother. The life that comes into it comes in at about 120 days gestation and that life needs to be given its full honour. Uh, so when a baby is miscarried after four months gestation, that's why those rights will change from that point onwards. It's so important to be able to understand that within Islam that the soul and the body can actually subsist and they only exist together around that 120 days, which is the consensus that I'm hearing. Do you think this gives women, at least in Australia, a few options when potentially they need to make a decision about, you know, things like terminations and whether to progress with a pregnancy or not? I think there's specific rulings around terminating a pregnancy depending on the reason and the, the underlying condition of the mother or the baby. Um, and I think there are some very strict rulings around when it's permissible to terminate a pregnancy. But I guess what whether there are rulings on things and firm um, guidelines about them or not, I think what's often forgotten in these discussions is the human element that comes into grieving a loss at any stage of a miscarriage. So whilst, yes, there are Islamic rulings around a baby who you've miscarried at, say, three months gestation, so you're talking at about 12 weeks, I, I know from what I've seen um, in the funeral parlour that that still looks like a fully formed human being. I can see its nose, its tiny fingers, its lips. I can tell what gender it is, um, even at that stage of, of its development. So when a mother loses um, a fetus at, at that gestation, although Islamically the four rights are not afforded to it, it's very difficult to then have that mother decide not to recognise or acknowledge that birth in any way, whether spiritually or legally, and then having to make a decision as to what to do with that fetus, given it doesn't fall into any of those neat categories. So this is where um, I have a lot of mothers come in having lost babies before that four months gestation and still say, is there something you can do? For my baby and I don't want to give the baby to the hospital for it to be destroyed. I do want to acknowledge it and honour it in a way but that also falls within 
Islamic guidelines. So what often happens in funeral parlors is that babies that are lost at that stage are often buried with another adult. So although they don't have a they don't need their own grave as such, and they're often not named, they are placed with an adult for burial together. And when we see that happen, we often see a sense of comfort for both the parents that have lost the baby and also for the adult, the, the family of the adult uh, that's being buried. So it comes together beautifully, and, and I think it deserves some recognition. Completely agree, Mary. It's so important to be able to give parents that opportunity to honour their babies no matter what stage of loss that they're going through. Could you just paint a bit of a picture as to what happens from the hospital to calling somebody like you to help with organising a funeral? Well, generally speaking, if a mother finds out that her uh, pregnancy is no longer viable or if the baby has died uh, in her uterus, then usually she's sent away and put on a waiting list in order to come back to hospital and have a procedure if it's not an emergency procedure that needs to take place. And then in that process, she's usually given some information about what happens if it's before that legally uh, recognised birth, I think it's about 17 weeks in New South Wales. I think it differs uh, in different states. But if it doesn't need to be named and it doesn't need to be registered legally, then you are given the option of having the hospital uh, dispose of it. If it's born after that time where it needs to be legally registered and given a name, then the process looks a little bit different. They're often told to contact a funeral director and then have the funeral director collect the remains and then bury it and register it according to the uh, New South Wales birth, deaths and marriages. So it really depends at which stage the loss occurs. But what I have found is, yes, again, we can talk about procedures and you need to call this person, this, what, this is what needs to happen. But I don't see enough emotional support given to the parents, in particular the mother because she's often left with those very difficult decisions to make um, during a very difficult time of loss. And when you're having to think about which funeral parlour do I call or which cemetery do I want this baby buried in, um, and you're doing that under immense grief and distress, it it can be, you know, what you do need first and foremost is that emotional support in order to make those decisions. And that's what I see is lacking most. That's the biggest gap at the moment. So that emotional support that you talk about, is that something that can be done in a structured sort of way? Or do you mean more the family and immediate support people around the woman who has just found out that she has lost a baby? Well, I mean, ideally, um, people from, from our community and, and from a lot of communities that are um, culturally and linguistically diverse, we have quite large families. That has its pros and cons. So usually um, you wouldn't be struggling to find you know, a support person. Grieving in the Muslim faith is very much a communal event. So we are encouraged to attend um, the funeral prayer of a person who's passed away, whether we know them or not. We do have a communal gathering for three days uh, for people to go and offer condolences to those that have had a loss. It's a very communal um, experience. So in terms of finding people to support you, it's often not difficult. However, how befitting that support is 
and whether people know what to say and what not to say is a different conversation. And for those women that do suffer a loss and are maybe here as migrants and don't have family or are disconnected from community, for them their experience is a lot more isolating and a lot more difficult. Mariam, I feel like you've got a lot of exposure to families in that moment, right? From your expertise and also from our Islamic teachings, what would you say is like the gold standard of how to handle grieving families? Well, I'd like to see a lot more compassion and a lot less rushing. I think when we deal with families and a lot of our funeral parlours, particularly of late, I'd say since um, COVID, the workforce isn't large enough to cater for the losses that we're seeing. And when you have a smaller workforce, you know, you're not able to give the family the time um, to make these decisions in a considered manner. They're not often given enough information about the decisions and about the options available to them. It's usually quite a rushed process. And in that, people make decisions that they later live to regret. And it's in those times that the hardest emotions to live with after a loss is regret. You know, I should have done it this way. Had I been told that I had that option, I would have chosen that option. It would have made my life a lot easier. Had I been told that I could bury my child at a cemetery that was much closer to where I lived as opposed to the default option that that provider gave me, it would have made visitation easier for me. It would have enabled the connection that I wanted to maintain between myself and my child a lot easier for me to maintain. So I I feel that, yes, it's a very distressing time for families, but being a provider that is able to offer all the options to families, to have crisis counselling available to them if they need it, particularly if the loss is sudden um, or uh, unexpected, Um, having some networks to then connect that family with if they do need ongoing counselling support, This is another really big gap. We don't seem to have enough culturally responsive counselling services for grief and loss, particularly for miscarriage and stillbirth. I mean, I work in the the sector and I struggle to find people that do this really, really well. So although I've often been an incidental or an accidental counsellor in the work that I do, a lot of people want that ongoing support and I struggle to connect them to people that can do it really well. Does this sort of feed into your work as a a death doula? Because you did sort of raise that you are an incidental counsellor. How does this all sort of tease into some of the work that you do and what's the sort of effort that you're trying to deliver? So in my role as a death doula, so the death doula part comes obviously before the death part. So once the death has taken place, that's when the funeral director is contacted. The death doula part happens any time between the notification of a death or a diagnosis of a terminal illness right up until the active dying phase and then when death overcomes that person. So that's that's where the role of a doula sits. And doula essentially means a person who's at the service of others, someone who's, in, who's helping uh, a, a person in a particular stage of their life. So you've got birth doulas, they've become a lot more popular lately, and you've also got death doulas. So one ushers in life, the other one ushers in death. And in the the death doula role, it really just involves providing material, practical, uh, and often spiritual support to people at end of life. 
Um, and when it comes to looking at people that have suffered a miscarriage or know that they no longer have a viable pregnancy, those conversations usually centre around the types of losses that that mother is now trying to process. Because what happens when you find out you're pregnant is literally the minute you see those two lines on the test, you've automatically started to plan and think and dream about what that child will mean to you in your life. So you'll think about, you'd ponder on what it's going to look like or, you know, what it's going to achieve in its life or how cute it's going to be or the difference it's going to make to your life. You plan its room. You start thinking about where you're going to fit it in your life, both practically and, um, you know, in terms of, of your, your living conditions and your your emotional ability or capability to, to have someone else into your family. And even if the loss occurs very early in a pregnancy, all of those dreams and all of those considerations that you only just started to consider then become nothing. And it's that massive void that's left when those dreams evaporate that you then have to work through. And so a lot of the shock um, is obviously of having to then process, okay, now how am I going to deliver this baby? Or if it's going to be a medical procedure, how long am I going to have to wait before I'm, I make it to that list? Some people are having to wait two and three days knowing that they have a fetus in there that's no longer alive. And that can be really traumatizing for mothers. Um, and of course, if it's a late term uh, you know, death, whether the, the baby is close to full term, that really does require an active labor process for the mother to bring that baby into this world, albeit asleep. So there's a lot of grieving that takes place in between these events and, of course, following the birth or the procedure. And that is often left unspoken. There are not many safe places where women can go and share the fact that they've lost a child at any stage um, of life. And I find that it's most difficult for those that have lost a baby in very early pregnancy. So you're talking first trimester. Because it's very easy for people to say things like, oh, you're young, you'll have another one, or oh, it was only a few weeks, or, you know, you can just try again. All these platitudes that come through at that time of loss are really, really unhelpful because it's almost like it's trying to erase the fact that this experience was ever there. And that can be really hurtful for mothers that are grieving. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that it's not even from our faith. Like we're not about burying losses. We're about actually acknowledging them and recognising them and going through that grieving process. Can I ask you, Mariam, I know that you've shared with me previously that you unfortunately yourself have actually experienced several losses and you're also going on a cancer journey. Now that's a lot of grief for one person to have to endure. And coupling that with your expertise and experience as a death doula and a funeral director and someone who is an incidental educator and counsellor around grief and loss, how does your lived experience actually inform your understanding of grief and how does it actually help you help others? Well, I think for the last 15 years my my passion has been talking about 
death and dying and talking about end of life and preparing yourself for the inevitable. But until my cancer diagnosis in 2020, um, I almost felt like I was speaking without much authenticity. So I was talking about very theoretical approaches. You know, in theory, this is what happens when someone dies. This is what we do. These are the steps that we take. But the, the grieving part and really owning what it feels like to be confronted with your own mortality really only hit me when I was diagnosed with cancer. And although um, I had my last treatment in June 2021, last year, um, I only realised very late in the piece all of the grieving that I had to do because I'm one of those people that keeps busy. So I try to distract myself. Okay, when's the next appointment? When am I going to speak to my oncologist? Um, when's the next surgery? What's the follow-up going to be like? What's the recovery going to be like? You know, I need to keep on top of work. How much leave do I need to take? I've got three children I was also caring for. So it was very easy to distract myself from what I was really going through. And in doing so, I essentially hit the pause button on my own grieving. And I can tell you from now that would inevitably catch up with you and it catches up with you in the weirdest ways. And I'm going to tell you a really funny story as to how I realized I had so much unresolved grief that I was carrying and that I really needed to sit with. So it was, I think, May 2021, um, just before my last surgery, I had made a protein shake for myself after training. And for some reason, I could not open the the, the lid to the Nutribullet mixer that I'd used. So I'd I'd, I'd screwed on the lid and put it in the fridge and I came to take it out to open it and I just trained and I couldn't undo the lid. And for some reason, I ended up in a heap on the floor in the kitchen crying my eyes out. And obviously, it had nothing to do with the neutral bullet lid and it had everything to do with all these things that I had gone through that last year that I never sat with. I never dealt with it. I never allowed myself to feel the effects of all the things that I was grieving. So I had a lot of work to do at that point. Wow. Do you um, have any recommendations for ways that people could potentially face that a little bit earlier on and not bury it so deep? And I think what you've explained is something's very familiar to most people that actually have to go through something like this where they do just bury it because it's almost easier. But probably not the healthiest, hey? No. And if we look at the way men and women grieve, we can often see that um, sometimes differences can be based on a person's gender. So men tend to be very instrumental if they've suffered an emotional loss or they've been through something difficult. They tend to become very fixated on getting things done. So I'm going to create a checklist and I've got to pack this away and I've got to pack that away and I've got to organize this and I've got to book that in and you know, I need to make an appointment to see this person. Whereas traditionally, and of course this is very generally speaking, women tend to allow themselves that time to sit with the way that they're feeling and sit with those emotions. We're a lot, we find it a lot easier to cry. We'll, we'll, we find it a lot easier to express ourselves. I mean, even when I was looking at the differences between men and women, I was like, I'm pretty masculine when it comes to the way I grieve because that's exactly what I did. I, I tried everything under the sun not to deal with what I was dealing with and just hoped for the best and, and moved forward. But even the men that, that go through that type of grieving 
get to a point where their grief will overcome them. And it often comes out in ways that are not obvious. So, you know, becoming very forgetful, becoming very angry. So snapping at things that, you know, they often would have more patience for, or even um, becoming a lot more isolated. So not mixing with their social networks or not returning calls or messages and becoming a lot more insular. So it, it, it'll, it'll manifest itself in, in very different ways. But I guess the, the, the concluding remark in, in these observations is that whether you choose to sit with it at the time it hits you or you pause, either way, you're going to have to make time for it. And some of the things that helps me make time for it is to find someone that allowed me the space to feel those emotions without judgment. And it's very hard for someone like me to even acknowledge that I'm going through something difficult. I usually put on that brave face and life goes on. So in order for me to put that mask down and allow myself to feel, I had to find a person or a place that offered me that space to do so without wanting to jump in and fix the way I felt. Because this is another common problem. Because grief and the expression of grief makes us feel so uncomfortable, we almost want to either close down the discussion, walk away, change the subject, um, or give a one-liner that we think is going to make it better. And there's no such thing. So it's about finding um, someone or, or a space that you feel comfortable I don't want to pathologize grief. I don't believe that we necessarily need to see a psychologist or a counsellor because we've endured a loss. However, in saying that, there are some uh, losses, if they're violent, sudden, unexpected, um, and depending on the circumstances around that loss, may lead to what's known as prolonged grief or complicated grief. And in those circumstances, if it's affecting your daily living, then it is best to seek the help of a professional for counselling. But definitely surround yourself with people that are going to give you that space. Feel free to maybe distance yourself from those that are only making your grief journey harder, um, people that will try and brush it off or shut the conversations down. Um, so find a support network that you know you can be heard and that will support you where you're at in your grief journey without trying to usher you along. Mariam, I just feel like I can talk to you for hours, but can I just throw another one at you where drawing in from your experiences and your expertise as a doula and a funeral director, what do you think the relationship of life and death is? Wow, that's a good question. I would say that death infuses everything that lives. Um, and I think we, we can look at that in so many different ways. The earth in which our food is grown is only alive because something died in that earth to give it its nourishment. So we think about our you know, fruit and vegetable scraps that we compost. Those things nourished us and then we put them back into the earth to nourish the earth and then the cycle continues. Um, in order for us to make way for what's coming that's new, we have to let go of what's old. You know, there's so many metaphors for the starts and finish of life and the cycle that it comes with. But as a, as a person who's been confronted by my own mortality and it, it has made me see life so much different. So for me, life now is all about legacy building. You know, what can I leave behind? What can I do? What, how much can I give back that's going to sow the seeds 
um, that I may never see come into fruition, but at least I've tried to sow those seeds so that I can leave my footprints on the earth long after I've gone. Because I think until you appreciate just how fragile life is, just how fragile you are as a human being, you, you can never really appreciate what you have. Um, we are all going to be handed an exit pass in this life, every single one of us. When that happens, we don't know. How it happens, we also can't, we can't predict, but we know that's for certain. So while you have life, um, you, you really need to live it in a way that aligns with your purpose and that leaves a legacy for those that will come after you. So that, that's, that's really become my, my view of life, but only because it's been touched by death. And I'm just going to leave it there. Mariam, thank you so much for your time today. And you are truly a testament to somebody who is leaving a legacy to give back long after you have gone. And it's such a pleasure to be able to have a conversation with you. And I really sincerely look forward to actually having you back on to see how you are actually progressing with some of the other exciting projects that you're working on, especially around death literacy and breaking down that, you know, the stigma around the fear of dying and the fear of grieving and grieving in a in a healthy and almost a faith-centric sort of way. So just want to say thank you for your time and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for having me, Fatima, and I look forward to listening to the rest of your episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stillness Podcast. Some of the topics raised in this show can be difficult. If it has left you with any questions, please message me on Instagram at thestillnest.au. Please subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast. It means so much to be able to share these stories. This podcast is produced, edited and recorded by Corey Green of Transducer Audio. And now I'll leave you with a little prayer. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Allahumma ajurni fi musibati. We belong to Allah and to Him we shall return. O oh Allah, recompense me for my affliction and give me something better. Take care. <laughs>